Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. here, the time of goodwill and good cheer, a time when we speak of peace on earth, tis the season. That's our theme for this month. I'm sure you can tell that my themes have had a theme of their own the past few months. I thought it would be a fun way to get things going in this podcast, and I hope you agree. Tis the season. We'll hear it so many times. In conversations, movies, music, stitched on pillows, and all sorts of places. Aside from being a song lyric, what does it mean? While it may often trigger thoughts of Christmas, it generally refers to the broader winter holiday season. So for December, we're going to look at Saturnalia, Yule, Hanukkah, and finish up by exploring the Christmas we know, including its origins and where some of the most common traditions came from. You'll probably notice some as we go through the month. I'll also try to mention some other winter celebrations along the way, including some you may not have heard of before. Alright, to get this theme started, we're taking another trip back to ancient Rome. Saturnalia is a pagan festival celebrating Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture and time. The planet Saturn, as well as Saturday, are both named after him. He is the Roman equivalent of the Greek Cronus. In Greek mythology, Cronus was a titan, father of Zeus and his siblings. Naturally, Saturn was a father to the Roman equivalent Jupiter and his siblings. Both were said to have reigned over a golden age. Also like Cronus, he devoured several of his own children while they were babies in fear one would overthrow him. Jupiter, the youngest, was hidden away by his mother Ops so that he could later overthrow Saturn as he had feared. At some point later, Jupiter chained Saturn to restrain him, the Greek equivalent of Zeus casting Cronus into Tartarus. The most notable difference is how Romans involved Saturn in the history of Latium. If you remember from the Emerging Societies theme, the mythological hero Aeneas, ancestor to Rome's founder Romulus, arrived in Latium where he married Lavinia, daughter of King Latinus. Saturn was likewise tied to Latium as one of the kings, possibly the first. And not only was he tied to that fabled lineage of Roman ancestry by being one of the kings, but his arrival in Latium itself was also tied to Roman ideas of their origins. In the Aeneid, Virgil wrote that King Latinus, whose daughter married Aeneas, was descended from Saturn. That Latinus was descended from Faunus, who was then descended from Picus, who was then said to be descended from Saturn. Saturn himself was said to have been something of a refugee in Latium after being overthrown by Jupiter. Here he was welcomed by Janus, his brother, the two-faced god of beginnings, endings, gates, and transitions, among others. Notably, Janus was uniquely Roman. No Greek equivalent. To the people of this land, Saturn brought laws and civil customs as well as agriculture ushering in a golden age. Eventually, as golden ages tend to do, 
it declined and Saturn's descendants succeeded him as rulers. So now you know who Saturn was. In truth, he can be a difficult one to identify, a bit challenging to sift through the information we have and determine what came from Rome originally and what was brought on by later Hellenistic influences. We'll see a little of that influence from Greece as we discuss Saturnalia. One last note about the god himself before we get into that. His temple was built at the base of the Capitoline Hill on the western end of the Roman Forum. Traditionally, the building has been dated to 497 BCE, and some of it still stands today, if only a small part of the whole. Just the front porch, actually. <laughs> I'll post a recent photo so you can see what's still there. The altar in front of the temple was believed to be much older, associated with the time of Saturn's rule. It's not quite that old, though. It is dated to the 6th century BCE, when it was built to honor the first god of the capital, Saturn. It has survived to this day and is protected by a shelter. For a time, this temple housed the Ararium, or treasury, where the Roman Republic stored reserves of gold and silver. We'll be visiting this temple as part of Saturnalia. Alright, we've got Saturn, and we've got his temple. Time to talk more about the holiday. Historians have learned about Saturnalia through the study of various primary sources, with no one source covering every aspect of the holiday, either because such a complete source never existed, or it has otherwise been lost to time. I've had the chance to study some primary sources from the ancient Greco-Roman period, and while it's not always easy to interpret them, I really do love it. Saturnalia took place from December 17th through December 23rd. This puts it around the time of the winter solstice. On the Julian calendar, used by the Romans at the time, the winter solstice occurred on December 25th. Imagine finding that day to be significant over 2,000 years ago. Today, the winter solstice takes place a few days before December 25th. This year, it'll be on December 21st. Last year, it was the 22nd. Usually, it takes place on one of those two days. From what I've found, after a year where it occurs on the 22nd, the next three years occur on the 21st, and that first 21st date happens in a leap year, which makes sense when you think about it. Looking at records from 2015 through predictions of 2025 using universal time as opposed to time zones, there's a trend. In 2015, it was on the 22nd at 4.40 in the morning. 2016... 21st at 10.45 in the morning, 2017, 21st at 4.29 in the afternoon, 2018, 21st at 10.22 at night, 2019, 22nd at 4.19 in the morning, 2020, 21st at 10.03 in the morning. See how that works? It pushes forward each day for four years, eventually rolling over into the next day. Then a leap year brings it back, which, if you didn't know, is why we have one. The Earth's trip around the Sun is approximately 365.25 days. 365.2425 if we want to be precise. And precision really does matter. That near quarter of a day, which is left out of each regular year, adds up and we use the leap day to make up for it and keep our calendar in line with the seasons, which is how our calendars remain standardized. By contrast, the Julian calendar the Romans used for a time had a slight problem with the leap year adjustment. 
It calculated the year on 365.25 days even. This seemingly tiny discrepancy meant that every 128 years, the calendar shifted by one full day. The Gregorian calendar we use today, which corrected that discrepancy, didn't come until Pope Gregory XIII in 1582 CE. That's over 1600 years since the Julian calendar was adopted in Rome and used throughout much of Europe. Dividing this even 1600 years by 128 years, the Julian calendar is off by 12.5 days, which we just refer to as 13 days. In fact, this 13-day difference will continue into 2099. I told you the Romans used the Julian calendar and that the solstice fell on December 25th. Well, that 25th and our 25th hasn't been the same 25th for a long time. Today, the Gregorian calendar's December 25th is December 12th in the Julian calendar. Another 45,000 years or so and the Julian and Gregorian calendars will be aligned again. Well, if I did my math right, doesn't it sound like there should be some kind of prophecy or something for that date? <laughs> Whew. I hope I didn't lose you in all that calendar and math talk, and I suppose it isn't necessarily important to know today, but I thought it was kind of fascinating to look at those little differences and see why it is we structure our calendar the way we do and what happened to the Julian calendar that had such a tiny difference in calculation. Just imagine our set calendar shifting little by little instead of Christmas being the exact same time every year, Thanksgiving, and everything else. Okay, back to Saturnalia's history. In midwinter, around the winter solstice, this holiday took place. As is evident by the name, it was to celebrate and honor Saturn and formed around the idea of the golden age he is said to have ruled over. The Roman historian Livy, who lived from 59 BCE to 17 CE, wrote that Saturnalia began in the 5th century BCE. However, evidence suggests that it is much older than that. Initially, the holiday was just one day. It wasn't expanded to a full week until 217 BCE. During this time, the Second Punic War was ongoing, which was the second of three wars fought between Rome and Carthage. In this particular year, they fought the Battle of Lake Trasimene, in which the Carthaginians, led by Hannibal, ambushed a Roman army and dealt them a heavy loss. The Carthaginian force numbered over 50,000, more than double the Roman force. Only a few Romans escaped, while the rest were either captured or killed. The Carthaginians suffered many wounds, but less than 3,000 were killed in this battle. It was at this time that the Sibylline books were consulted. These books, written in Greek, contained the words of oracles called Sibyls and were consulted by the Romans when faced with a great crisis. For example, in 216 BCE, after suffering another defeat, the Romans consulted these texts and followed their recommendation. That recommendation was to burn two Gauls and two Greeks in the marketplace. We know of at least 18 instances in which the books were consulted. Their original acquisition is the stuff of legendary Roman history. The story goes that the last king of Rome, Tarquinius Superbus, ruling from 534 to 510 BCE, purchased the three books. It was said that he was approached by the Cumaean Sibyl, 
a priestess who presided over the Apollonian Oracle at Cumae, which is located near Naples in Italy. A very important sibyl, to be sure. And not the only one, though she's the only one relevant to us today. She first offered him nine books, and he refused to pay her the extremely high price she demanded. So she burned three of them, and then offered the remaining six at the same price. He refused again, so she burned three more. Though she did not lower the price, he finally accepted and purchased the remaining three books. Of course, this may only be the stuff of legends. The tales from this time of Roman kings tend to mix legends and history, which can make it hard to nail down exactly what is true and what is exaggerated. The books, however they came to be in Rome, are quite real. At least, what's left of them. Unfortunately, only some fragments of them have survived both intentional and unintentional loss or destruction. For our purposes today, what's important is how these brought Greek influence into Saturnalia. It was after the texts were consulted following the crushing defeat in 217 BCE that the festival expanded to seven days starting on December 17th. During his reign, Augustus chose to reduce the number of days to three. In his short rule from 37 to 41 CE, the third emperor, Gaius Julius Caesar Germanicus, also known as Caligula, expanded the festival to five days. Fun fact, Caligula is a nickname meaning little boot that his father's soldiers gave him during their campaign in Germania. His successor Claudius, who ruled until 54 CE, maintained this five-day span. However, that decision wasn't exactly followed. Not because people stuck to the three days of Augustus, but because they kept celebrating the full seven days anyway. So while the emperors were trying to change it up, the people didn't really seem to care. And so we maintain that it was a seven-day celebration, because that's how the Romans celebrated it. Aside from the seven-day change, they ended up adopting some rites from the Greek. In so doing, they introduced sacrifices carried out as the Greeks did, and a public banquet. Some did not take to these changes as well as others did. Cato the Elder, a conservative Roman senator who lived from 234 to 149 BCE, opposed Hellenization, or the spread of Greek culture, into Rome. It is through his own writings that we know his opinion on this. He wrote quite a bit, and from what survives of his speeches, one of the things we learn is what he saw as Rome's moral decline. We can learn a lot from his position that resisted the flow of change faced by the Roman Republic. Perhaps some other time. As I mentioned, Saturnalia was meant to celebrate and reflect the golden age of Saturn's rule. Now that you know when it was expanded, you can see what might have led them to do so. And of course, they had their interpretation of the Sibylline books as influence too. As a final note for consideration, as a final note for consideration, archaic Roman historian Dr. Robert Palmer asserted the possibility that this change was, at least in part, to appease the Carthaginian god Baal Hammon, considered the counterpart of Saturn and Cronus. The celebration was crafted in such a way that the nature of life in Rome changed for the seven days. The Latin poet Gaius Valerius Catullus, who lived in the late Roman Republic from 84 to 54 BCE, called it the best of days. 
Another description, which is fitting for our theme, is that it was the merriest time of the year for the Romans. Social order was temporarily suspended during this time. Slaves were included and even given the freedom to do as they pleased, to come and go, eat, celebrate, and live as if they were free. Now, don't think of slaves quite as they were in this country. There were some key differences that set them apart which might help you to see how this temporary suspension of their servitude actually worked. Their masters had full authority, including over life and death. They were only for the wealthy, and ruling elites such as emperors could have hundreds. It was a mark of status, and slave-owning would at times be sought for that purpose, not just for the free labor. Most were obtained as prisoners of war, and Rome certainly had plenty of that. But that wasn't all. Some were born into it. Some were abandoned as babies and taken in. Some got themselves into debt and had to sell themselves. Interestingly, they weren't in competition for jobs. They could be found working all throughout society and oftentimes right along people who were free. And we're talking potentially high-status jobs. Even doctors and accountants of the time could have been slaves which would tell you that slaves could also be highly educated. In addition, slavery wasn't necessarily a lifetime sentence, though it certainly was for many. Some were set free at the slave owner's discretion. Many had to save and buy their freedom. Sometimes these freed slaves would even become slave owners themselves if they were in a position to do so. And as freedmen, they still had value, sometimes recognized even by the emperor, depending on skills that they had developed. All of that isn't to say they didn't face oppression. This is still slavery, and they were still considered property. So they certainly did, some worse than others, and some would attempt to escape. Some tried rebellion as well. But for those suffering brutal conditions in mines or on farms, there were also those working in what we now define as white-collar jobs. They would also work other side jobs to save up what money they needed for freedom. And though conditions could be brutal, they were still also viewed as people. Whole people at that, not just three-fifths of a person. They even had the opportunity to become citizens, complete with a right to vote if they were male, if they obtained freedom. Having said all of that, make no mistake when I say slavery was still a bad thing. There is no denying or disputing that. What set it apart from the slavery in the United States was the structure of it, approach to it, and attitudes regarding the slaves themselves. Also, they didn't base it on race. And this different structure really helped make it possible for the slaves to have their temporary freedom during Saturnalia, a taste of what they might be able to earn for themselves one day, perhaps. Okay. So we've covered who slaves were and the fact that they got their freedom for the seven days of Saturnalia. This freedom reached surprising levels, which is part of why I wanted to convey the structure of slavery. According to Macrobius, our major source, slaves were treated to a dinner, and not just any dinner, but one like their masters would eat. It is possible the master even served this dinner and either they would eat together, or the master would wait for the slave to finish. They also got a degree of free speech, which notably allowed them to actually be disrespectful to their master if they wanted to, with no fear of punishment. Now, isn't that something? Of course, they weren't the only ones celebrating and not having to work. 
both schools and workplaces would close down for the seven days of Saturnalia. Everyone was free to enjoy the festivities. That's the nature of this festival celebrating Saturn's golden age. Peace and merriment. Freedom. Leisure. Fun and games. Liberation overall was pretty important to Saturnalia. On the first day, a ritual would take place at the Temple of Saturn. Almost all year round, the statue of Saturn had its feet bound with wool. Recall that Jupiter was said to have done this to contain him, presumably sometime after that golden age had gone into decline. For the festival, these bindings were removed in a symbolic act of liberation. Going along with the Greek influence, a sacrifice would be made with the priest's head uncovered, possibly a nod to the role reversals of Saturnalia since Roman priests usually had their heads covered by a special fold in their toga. Again in the Greek rite, the Senate had a lectisternium, which is basically placing a deity's image, Saturn in this case, on a fancy couch as if he were participating in the ceremony. Then they had a public banquet. Well, look, more festive food. The 23rd of December, which was the last day of Saturnalia, was a special day called Sigillaria. This was a day dedicated to gift-giving. Of course, they were still in the midst of the suspension of the social order, so they couldn't give just any gifts. The gifts needed to be something that anyone could give without showing their wealth. To that end, they would give pottery or wax figurines called sigillaria, from which the day gets its name. As you might expect, these figures were often made to look like Apollo, Hercules, or any number of divinities or mythological entities. Other possible gifts included candles, or apparently even gag gifts, which Augustus seems to have enjoyed. That doesn't mean expensive gifts weren't given. They certainly were, but that wasn't necessarily a good thing, according to the Roman poet Marcus Valerius Martialis. He lists many of these gifts, but also mentions an inverse relationship between gift value and friendship. That is, a cheaper gift signaled a stronger friendship. So basically, if you were really good friends with someone, then you wouldn't want to spend a lot of money on their gift. Children also received gifts as well, of course. Toys, naturally. Some households would practice gift-giving on other days, but the official gift-giving for Saturnalia celebrations took place on the last day of the festival. Anything else was left up to what the individual households decided. There was also a Saturnalicus princeps, meaning ruler of the Saturnalia, also referred to as king of the Saturnalia. This person was appointed by lot, and he served as master of ceremonies for the festival. No record of this exists in the Republican period, and it may have developed in response to being ruled by a princeps. Princeps was the title Augustus took as ruler. He would never refer to himself as king or emperor. His reign was celebrated by many as a new golden age, and with the 200-year Pax Romana starting during his rule, you can imagine why. However, it seems the ruler of the Saturnalia was aimed at mocking the world with one man ruling over all. This ruler of the Saturnalia was not some benevolent character in the festival. He was more like a bringer of chaos, a joke of what rule by an emperor king is like. He would go around making ridiculous, silly, 
petty commands which the guests at the proceedings had to obey. And we're really talking silly stuff, like telling someone to go and sing naked. It was a command, not a suggestion, and had to be obeyed. A curious tradition, to be sure, but reflected in this free speech and disruption of the social order. They also had a phrase that was commonly spoken or shouted during this time, Io Saturnalia. It was a ritual exclamation used specifically during Saturnalia, a characteristic part of the celebrations you'd start hearing on the first day and hear all the way through the last. It might be used as a greeting, announcing a triumph, or even as part of a joke. Well, I think that about covers it. We covered Saturn, his origins, the festival's origins, how the festival was structured, probably way more about slavery than you expected, and the various rites involved in the celebration. Of course, parts of the festival did change over time, and as the Roman Empire transitioned into Christian rule, we see the pagan festival fade away, but not necessarily the traditions. We'll see what happens there in a few weeks. Next week, we're going to cover the Yule holiday. Until then, take care. Mm-hmm.